So the fifth aliyah of Toldos is where a lot of the action is. There's a lot of action in Toldos as a whole, but the fifth aliyah for sure is arguably the most well-known of the sections of Toldos, uh, together with the first aliyah. Essentially, this is the follow-up and the sequel to what happens in the first aliyah. In the first aliyah, we have the sale of the birthright and much to talk about that. Those who were with us on the bus on Tuesday, we had the opportunity a little bit to talk about that. And then the aliyahs in between really shift the action to completely different topics. But it's now that we see what plays out because of the events of the first aliyah. Because now there needs to be the next step, the actual acquisition of the brachos through Yaakov. And here we have Rivka's involvement and her convincing him to take steps which uh, certainly seem on the surface to be somewhat deceptive. And understanding <coughs> exactly what's going on here is a topic of much discussion in the Mepharshim and much discussion in many different directions. And it requires uh, analysis on a lot of different levels. So we'll probably go back and forth in terms of looking at the psukim and looking at the larger themes and sharing some of the very different perspectives that have been pointed towards this aliyah. And we know that we have to have a very careful attitude towards evaluating the actions of the avos. And that the whole topic is whole theme in of itself among the Farsham, how exactly do we know when it's an appropriate uh, comment more harshly, when do we assume that's not within our rights. So we take the lead from the Farsham, and here we do find different points that are made about the actions of Yaakov and of Rivka, perhaps even of Yitzchak. It's actually more about that in the next Ali also. So there are many different perspectives that are shared by the Mepharshim, and we will take them as a launching point for that. But also to note that the Midrashim also talk about the fact that one way or another, even if we assume that the step that Yaakov takes in the Saliyah was necessary for the advancement of Kal Yisrael and that Rivka was acting Alpi Nevua, but there have been consequences for the generations. So the Medrash tells us in Bracious Rabbah that because Yaakov made Esau cry, so we paid the price as descendants, and that the Pasuk in the beginning of the fourth paragraph of Gilles Esther, which talks about Mordechai crying, is a tear that he sheds as a consequence of Esau's tears. There is a statement in the Tanchuma that Esau cried three tears, one out of his right eye, one out of his left eye, and the third was held back, and that one has salted our exile, however you understand that. So the notion that this is certainly, at minimum, a complicated episode that has had consequences for our people for generations is one that Chazal seemed to convey to us and the Mepharshim also struggle with, so we'll do our best to try to understand how to approach it. And just we'll note that even before the actual action starts, there's a reference here first to the wells, which we won't spend too much time on, 
dwells or a topic of earlier psukim in this parsha, and there's a lot to say about them, but we won't necessarily focus our attention on them so much. But uh, to skip to what sets up this major confrontation, so let's skip to Pasuk Lamedalid. And there we see that Esav gets married, and these wives that Esav takes are not good. Not good for him, not good for <coughs> his parents. But they were causes of depression, causes of anxiety for his parents. Uh, they were disrespectful, they were ungrateful, uh, they were idolatrous, apparently, as well. And that's relevant to what we read in the next passage. So here, Yitzchak has become older, and he has become blind. He has problems seeing, his eyes have become very weak. And Chazal give us different reasons as to why. Apparently, it wasn't only a function of age. There were direct impacts on his vision, such as the Gemara Megillah says the fact that he was mistakel b'adam Russia, that he was exposed to evil, and that's its own problem. But Rashi here specifically highlights the Be'ashana and Shalelu, the fact that these wives, these daughters-in-law, were serving idolatry. And the smoke that came from that, so that impacted his ability to see. So what about Rivka? Why wasn't she also subject to this? So the Sifta Chavim comments over there that she was used to it, that she grew up in a house with a Vodazara, unlike Yitzchak, and therefore, I guess she had built up somewhat of a tolerance, somewhat of an immunity to this kind of effect. And Rav Shlomo Miller, the Rosh Cole from Toronto, printed recently, from him, and there he discusses the fact that there's a greater significance for this point that affects the rest of the Lilia, maybe the rest of the Parsha as a whole, that it's not only this isolated fact that Rivka's background helped protect her, immunize her against the impact <coughs> of the idolatrous smoke, but also it's about the trickery and the fact that Esau had this in his character and that it seems, there's more to say about this, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that Yitzchak was not completely aware, perhaps, of Esau's nature, and Yidrifka was more aware, and that awareness, he suggests, was also connected to the fact that she had more exposure to tricky characters and to people who were underhanded, and... Yitzchak was more of a Tamim, as Yaakov was described as Ishtam in our parsha. but Yitzchak was the person of Tamimus, who grew up in a house of Tzadikim, and was not able to perceive the deceptive nature in the same way. But together with that, he also notes it's not only that she was able to recognize it, but she was also able to dabble in it. She was also able to outsmart him. And this is an idea we actually mentioned the other day because this Pasuk appeared in the Kapitel Tillam we were saying. But it's also in Shmuel Beis. The same Pasuk is in Tehillim and in Shmuel Beis. The idea of Imikesh Titapal, 
from Pasuk that says that when you're dealing with honest people, you should be honest, but when you're dealing with somebody who is less than completely straight, then you have to also know how to be able to meet them on their terms. And as he suggests there, the purpose is, on the one hand, not to let yourself be exploited, but also that such forces shouldn't win. So somebody who knows how to maneuver his way around people, so you have to be able to head him off at the pass and to stop him from being able to have that impact on others. So this is important even for a tzaddik to be able to do. It's a question the Gemara raises. Is it ever appropriate for a tzaddik to act beramos, so to speak? And we'll see this is a topic that's going to come up later in the context of Yaakov again. So here, Rivka is attuned to this because attuned to this because of her upbringing, and she has this awareness that perhaps Yitzchak doesn't have. So we'll come back to a little bit more about the difference between Rivka's awareness or her attitude and Yitzchak and what exactly he was or wasn't aware of. But as far as the behavior that she advocates and that Yaakov ends up adopting. So there is much to be said about this. Rav Shamshin Hirsch is quite critical of it, and he is among those who feels that there is what that has to be seen with a sense of judgment. He's also judgmental about Rivka and Yitzchak and their parenting style earlier in the Parsha. But here he makes wrong judgments also about this plan and its deceptive nature, and he notes that it's one thing, okay, so Yaakov feels that he has to listen to Rivka because of Kibreim, even though there should be limits to that, and that's uh, still something that has to be understood in balance. But what exactly was Rivka thinking? And the idea that Rivka is orchestrating this plan to essentially hoodwink Yitzchak and would that even accomplish anything? So are brachos really so automatic that it doesn't really matter what kind of techniques are taken to obtain them? And presumably this would be a mekartos, you get a bracha under false pretenses. So is there no divine force behind them that is going to transcend any falseness that would be involved in obtaining them? So he has an interesting approach of Hirsch that essentially what she was orchestrating here was a complicated sting, essentially, to get Yitzchak to recognize just how much she can be exploited. And that, indeed, when he comes aware of how he has been fooled in this case, so he'll realize that he's vulnerable to such approaches, and he'll understand that he has to reevaluate his take on Esav, and that he was missing something in terms of how he was assessing Esav. So to pause on that point for a second, and the question of just how much was he really taken in by Esav, so that's a complex question. And the beginning of the parsha, which tells us that have Yitzchak as Esav kitzayid v'fiv, so on the surface, that doesn't seem to put him in such a great light. So just translating the Pasuk very literally, so it sounds as if he was susceptible to being bribed by him, to being won over by the fact that he was able to get him flesh, he was able to get him good meat with his hunting, and that therefore was enough reason for Yitzchak to love him, and for that to blind him, now literally before this figuratively, 
to his unsavory character. And presumably there's more to it than that. And Chazal note another step that Esav Tzayid B'fiv means here his deceptiveness and that he would act righteous and he would ask Shilas that would give the impression that he was concerned about the details of halacha, how do you take meiser on salt, things like that. And that's what it means that he was able to win over Yitzchak's love through that way. But that also doesn't really portray Yitzchak in the greatest light, that's a drop better than saying he was won over by the meat that he was able to provide for him, but still it presents him as very gullible and very easily fooled. So there are those who suggest that there was a greater awareness on the part of Yitzchak than we may assume based on how it's presented here, and that it's more of a complicated story. That Clearly, Yitzchak, especially because the story begins before he's unable to see. So how clueless could he have been in terms of Esau's fundamental character? So there are many who suggest in different ways that Yitzchak certainly did have some recognition that there was this fundamental difference between Yaakov and Esau, and certainly that Yaakov was by far the more spiritual of the two, the Yoshev Tam, the Ishtam Yoshev Ohalim. But the idea that he wanted to give the brachos to Esav, nonetheless, reflected something else. So, for example, there are discussions about this in the Sichos of the Rashiv of and also the Mashkiach at the time the Rashiv was there of Rivlin. They both have Svarim in which they talk about similar approaches that perhaps Yitzchak thought that Yaakov was too spiritual to advance the mission of the Avos in this world, and that you need somebody who has more Gashmias to him and could be able to take on the physical aspects of the world. Or Yaakov Kamenetsky has a similar approach where he notes that the whole endeavor of the Avos is to be Makadish and Shemayim in this world, and that perhaps Yaakov was too parish, was too separate and distinct from this world. Rav Kook has a comment, which perhaps we can particularly relate to at this point in history, that Yitzchak felt that the Jews would need to have the ability to fight and to be able to defend themselves and protect themselves against all of the forces of the world that seek to hurt them. And that Esau, with his hunting ability, he had this aspect, and that Yaakov wouldn't have this aspect. So there are many different ways to look at this. I think also, perhaps, to go back to the language in the first Aliyah, there is something also to note about the way the Pasuk is structured. It says, They have Yitzchak as Esau, Kitzayid Befev, Rivko, Hevis as Yaakov that maybe that language itself suggests a different kind of love there, that Rivka had an instinctive reaction of love to the purity and the righteousness of Yaakov, so that's fine. But the idea of Yitzchak, the Yehav Yitzchak Esav, which kind of sounds the way it's phrased, like a more deliberate choice of a decision to actively love him, and perhaps it represents the idea that he perceived the complexity, to say the least, of Esav, that there were mixtures of good and bad within him, again, to say the least, that there certainly was an aspect, 
of negativity, but that there was also that which he could work with, and that he had to give him greater attention and greater focus and greater active love in order to try to cultivate that. And that, that perhaps that was the goal. So if that's the case, so first of all, it's very different than the interpretation that Rav Hirsch has in the beginning of the parasha where he says that the problem was that Yitzchak and Rivka gave the two boys the same treatment and the same education. It was a violation of Chanoch Lenar al-Pidarko. So here we are suggesting that really they did perceive significant differences and even Yitzchak, who is on a shot level portrayed here as less aware, maybe he was more aware than we are necessarily giving him credit for, but therefore chose actively to give his attention and his focus and his love in a directed way to Esav in order to try to win over that positive aspect of him. And I just saw that uh, this idea in a, different, in a different form, but a very similar development, they recently published, I think it was last year, they came out with a safer of the ideas of Rav Shmuel Berenbaum, who's a great reshiva of the Mir here in America. And the Sefer is only in the first half of a it only goes up to Toldo, so this is the last week I can quote from him. But he discusses there, I think along very similar lines, that this was an active decision on Yitzchak's part to shower love on Esav, but he develops it with an additional point. He says, so why is it this idea, specifically Kisayid Befiv, and what was he picking up on? So there was an attribute of Esav that Yitzchak specifically noticed in a correct way and wanted to cultivate. And that was that even though Chazal say very negatively, that he was deceptive and he would pretend to be a tzaddik and ask the Shilas to make it look like he cared, but what Yitzchak perceived in that, not that he was fooled into thinking he was genuinely such a tzaddik, but he perceived there a desire to please. And we know that Chazal do assume that he did genuinely, to some extent, have the aspect of kibbutz, but that that desire to please is something that could be cultivated and nurtured. And therefore, Yitzchak decided to zero in on that, and brachos were also a part of that, a part of trying to help develop that sense, and that if there's at least that much, at least you want to try to make your father happy, so that's something that can be the subject of focus and of active love, and that he can try to make that grow, and he can try to make that develop. And as long as there's that, as long as there is that desire to please the Father, that's something to hold on to. And so it was specifically that, in that aspect of Kibbutz, that he then turned his attention to and tried to focus his active love on. And he also notes there, it's an interesting point, and this is something to ponder about, so one can take a different perspective, but we normally advocate that parents should have unconditional love for their children. So here he's saying something different, but in a different direction. So you would think that the opposite of that is to have conditional love and to hold it back. So that's not what he's saying, but he's saying the opposite in a different direction, that he's saying that the idea that Yitzchak loved him, Kitzayid Befiv, says that there is a Maila specifically to a parent who's looking to try to encourage the child to have something to focus on. 
so to speak, even though Pirkei Avos says it shouldn't be Avos to leave a daver, but here they're saying, without referencing that Mishnah, that there is an advantage to be Tuliyavadavar in a sense, that to be able to focus on something and to say, oh, you're good at this, and this is something that you can praise and that you can encourage. So the way he understands it, the child feels that's more genuine, and the child sees that you're not just, in this case, blindly saying that I love you, but that you are actively finding something and that that shows genuine interest, and that shows that you are really paying attention to him, and that that really had a chance of actually having an impact. So that's this very fascinating interpretation here, that Yitzchak specifically chose this midah, which has the potential to expand and increase, even though he maybe knew that Esau was using it deceptively, but that it represented some core of something that could turn into something more, and that he focuses on that, and that the act of having something to focus on is itself a positive parenting tool to potentially influence the child. And he notes there, there's a discussion of Sefer Yad HaKitana, that what would you say about somebody who every Yom Kippur says he wants to be better, and then during the year, very soon, his resolution falls apart, and he no longer sticks to it. You know, the day after Yom Kippur, or earlier than that. And next year it's the same thing, and next year it's the same thing again and again. So would you say there's any meaning to this person's Kabbalah, to this person's claims towards Shuvah? And so he wants to argue in a similar fashion that yes, that that alone is significant. Just the desire to say you want to be better. So even if there's nothing else that comes along with that, and even if it doesn't last long, but that itself is worthy of credit, and uh, Kresh Baruch Hu appreciates that, so, so to speak, or that's something that can be built on. And that's what Yitzchak was appreciating here. So you could ask, just to say an extra thought about this, so, okay, so let's now credit Yitzchak more than we have in the past, or more than we may otherwise have in the past, with greater awareness than the Psukim sound like, but should you say, nonetheless, even if we give him all this more credit, but was it nonetheless a failed attempt? So I would argue that it's not necessarily a failed attempt, because first of all, so to combine other statements of Chazal, so the fact that Esav ends up taking his own path, a negative path, so the implication of Chazal in the beginning of the Parsha is that that was destined to happen anyway, because that was the response that Rivka got when she had that difficult pregnancy, that there's going to be these two very different nations. So it seems like that was not necessarily the result of anything that the parents necessarily created by their treatment of them. So that's one point to think about. But also the fact that Esau did excel in Kibbutz, and that is something that Chazal have consistently identified. So it shows that on some level Yitzchak was successful with his plan, that at least he created a kesher, at least he did create a bond, and that ability to have that potential is very significant. And therefore, to say that it was either a complete lack of awareness or even some awareness, but a completely unsuccessful plan, maybe it was not either of those things. Maybe there was awareness and some level of success, but nonetheless, ultimately still, it was Yaakov who was destined to receive the brachos, and that's why this plan had to take place in order to 
make that happen. Uh, Rav Hirsch notes also that it's interesting that Yitzchak, in instructing Esav what to do, asks him for a meal. And why is that significant? What does that got to do with anything? So he suggests that he wanted to make the point here that Esav can take his hunting skill and turn it into Rufnius, that he can do something positive with it. He can use it as a tool for Kibbut Aim and use it as a part of the context for the bracho. So that was towards this goal of harnessing his inclinations towards Rufnius. Uh, Rav Schwab the ultimate successor of Rav Hirsch's Kehillah, he notes that Yitzchak's appreciation of Esau's food actually was because he perceived a Ruchnius component to it, but that that Ruchnius actually was the Zchus of the mitzvah of Kibarav. And that Rivka was responding to that, that Rivka specifically instructing Yaakov what he had to do was a way of co-opting that power, of giving Yaakov the Zchus of in order to energize him to be able to take on Esav with the tool that he had earned. So that's itself a very interesting angle to this whole story. So as part of his instruction here, so we see that Yitzchak tells Esav, so you should hunt me something. And Rashi adds here that his instruction to hunt that you should take something that doesn't have any owner and it shouldn't be stolen. So that perhaps also could be taken as an indication that you see that Yitzchak thought there was what he had to worry about with Esau, that he had to warn him not to steal it that he had to tell him, make sure that it doesn't belong to somebody else, whatever you're hunting. But there could also be another layer to this. So, yes, it shows that he did have something to be suspicious of, that Asa would be likely to otherwise take something that belonged to someone else. But it could be that may come from a more complicated point, a more complicated place as well. That maybe this is kind of shades of his son Eliphaz. So we'll read about Eliphaz later, or we'll read at least Chazal's telling us the story of Eliphaz that when Alifaz is sent on the mission to kill Yaakov, so he doesn't know what to do because Yaakov is his Rebbe, but his father says she kill him, so what do you do if your father says kill your Rebbe? So, first of all, public service announcement, please don't. But, uh, <laughs> um, as far as I know, I haven't gotten that bad of a reaction from any Talmud so far, but just in case. But, uh, as a matter of halacha, also... That's not what you're supposed to do. So this is certainly included in one of the things that you're not supposed to do for Kiburav. But that's the point. So the idea that Chazal tell us that Alifaz was in a quandary. He didn't know what to do. So he ended up taking all of Yaakov's money because Ani Chashid Kameis, and that was his, so to speak, brilliant way of addressing this conflict that his father said he'd kill your Rebbe, but his Rebbe probably didn't want to be killed. So his teretz was to make his Rebbe poor and Chashid Kameis. So... For the record, that's not as brilliant as it seems, because if, you're, again, if your father says, kill your Rebbe, there's a pretty clear path to that one, and just <coughs> say, with all due respect, that's not included in the mitzvah. And the fact that the fact that Alifaz didn't understand that, so Reb Chaim Shmulevitz has a often quoted, probably one of his more well-known sichos, he has an often quoted sicha about this, the topic of, or v'choshech mishtamshin berbuvia, when you have darkness and light, 
coexisting. So you end up with a mess. And that essentially, that's what the story was with Eliphaz. There was a little bit of goodness that he wanted to try to do what his father said. He thought he was a Talmud of Yaakov. He thought that he was trying to do the right thing. But there was also this darkness that didn't allow him to see that this was clearly not the right step to take. So you end up in a very misguided path if you have this mixture of light and darkness all coexisting. And perhaps you see a little hint of that here also, that maybe that's what Yitzchak was afraid of, that he'll tell Esav, go get me some food. And Esav will think, okay, so I'll perform Kibbut Aveim and I'll steal in order to do it. And he'll think that that's justified because he'll also have this aspect of and so it's not just that Yitzchak was afraid that he'd steal because he's immoral, but he's maybe worried that he'll justify it to himself and he'll think that this is the kind of thing I can do in order to perform the mitzvah of Kibbutz Rav Nassim Gishtetner and his sefer, Laharus Nassim on Bracious, there's a whole discussion about what kind of pilpul maybe Asa would have done to justify that this is the right thing to do. And this is what the was a hint of, and maybe this is the same idea, of Or V'choshech Mishdam Shem So he tells him to bring me this food, and V'yaseli Matamim, Kasher Ahavti, V'yavili V'ochela, B'avor, T'verecha Nafshi, B'ter Mamus. So bring me this food, that will make me happy, and then I'll be able to bless you. So the idea of being able to bless you, because I'll be happy, so this far right, Shuvah Maram and others, that person giving a bracha has to be happy. So that's conducive to being able to give the bracha, we find this possibly having an impact on halacha, because we know there's a mitzvah in Torah of Berchus Konin, which as far as we can tell, should take place every day, like it does in Eretz Yisrael. So it's a good question, how come in Chutzlaretz we don't find Berchus Konin taking place every day? And there are those who have tried to change that, because it doesn't have an obvious explanation as to why that should be. So the Ramah understands that in Chutzlaretz, we don't do Berchus Konim because the bracha requires simcha, and we're too miserable living in Chutzlaretz, so we can't have the same level of simcha as they do in Eretz Yisrael. And it's only on Yantif, with the extra simcha of Yantif, that we're able to be like people in Eretz Yisrael are during a normal day. So we need that extra jolt of simcha that Yantif gives us in Chutzlaretz to be able to reach that level of simcha, to be able to give the bracha for Berchus Konim. So this idea that you need simcha in order to give the bracha, so that's indicated here, and that's perhaps what he's trying to convey here. So Rivka Shamas Bedaver. So Rivka hears what's going on. So Rivka Shamas Bedaver. Yitzchak El Esav Beno. Ve'Yelech Esav Asade Lotzitzayef Lahavi. So she's overhearing. It's all very dramatic. She hears what's going on, and Esav goes off to hunt. Rivka Amr El Yaakov Beno Lemor. Hinei Shamati Asavicha Bedaver El Esav Bechich Lemor. I overheard what's going on. And Haviyali Tzayev Vaseli Matamim Vochela Varecha Lefnei Hashem Lefnei Mosi Vyatovini Shema Bekoli Lasher Ani Mitzav Osach. Right. So she's again, like we said, harnessing this power of Kibbutzim towards her forces. Lechna Latzon Vekachli Misham Shnei Gedayi Yizim Tovim Vyaso Sam Matamim Lavicha Kasher Ahev. So you should go and you should get these two. Animals, and you should bring them for this purpose. So the gracious rabbi says that the two animals she's asking for, one is for the bracha, for him, and one is for a kapara, for his descendants. And the Rav Salvechik has in his drashas that Rivka was explaining to Yaakov, who was so spiritual and not focused on money, you should know that money has a value, has a purpose, and it can be like a sir Hashem, when you sacrifice it for a good cause, it could also be a sir Azazel, when you feel like you're suffering too much from losing it, and so a kapara, you should recognize the power of both, 
and you should get it. Uh, but she also emphasizes that these are hers, and that this is not something that's gazel, and that she had a, a deal with Yitzchak. This was a part of her ksuba, as Rashi quotes. This is actually relevant. I think we spoke about last year about the prenup, and this is one of the makoros that some bring. That or by Blech quotes this actually in his sefer. That you see a raya from here that it's legitimate for a husband to greatly increase the amount that he commits to give his wife in the ksuba much more than would be considered normal. This is a tremendous amount for a husband to commit to giving his wife in the ksuba, and that this was a part of Reb version of the prenuptial agreement, that you can add a lot in your obligation to the ksuba and then make it dependent on other things, and that that would be an incentive to deal with the marriage properly. So in any event, so she gives him these instructions, this is what you should do, and you should bring it to him. And so here Yaakov is resistant to this, and he says that Esav is much hairier than I, so skip the Pasuki Beis, Ulai Musheni Avi, Ve'isi Be'inav, Kmisateya, Ve'evesi Alai, Klala V'lai Bracha. So maybe he's going to feel who I am, he's going to touch me, and he's going to see that I am not Esav. And that's going to be bad. So the Gemara Marcus and Dafkov Dalit has a comment here, which seems a little bit out of place on the first glance, that applies the Pasuk in Tehillim of Al-Lorago Al-Shono, that Yaakov was careful not to speak Lashon Hara. So how is that relevant here? So the Tartimimus suggests that it's relevant because he was afraid he was going to get in trouble because he wouldn't be ready to defend himself if Yitzchak catches him, he wouldn't be ready to defend himself and say, well, it was all mommy's fault, it was all mommy's idea, she told me to do this, because he's so mocked in Lashon Hara, he's not going to expose that it was Rivka's idea, so he's going to have to take the whole rap for this, so that's why he's worried about this. The Maharshah says differently, and the Maharshah says that he wouldn't even be willing to talk about Esav, so he could have defended himself by saying that, uh, Abba, you don't know how unworthy Esav is and all the things that everyone else knows about he's, what he's been doing, and I had to take this step in order to save Klal Yisrael's future and to take the brachos, but he wouldn't have been willing to say that either, and therefore another reason why he would have had to just look very bad in Yitzchak's eyes, so he's worried about this. But nonetheless, he's still conflicted. So the Don Lagon has a comment here that his core honesty is fighting against this, and that the language of Ulai is different than pen. When you say pen, it means maybe something could happen that's bad. And that's why the donors are taking their money away from Penn now. But Ulai means that maybe something could happen and you might want it to happen. So that's a strange usage here. He's saying, Ulai, maybe I'll get caught. So the girl understood, yeah, maybe he wanted to be caught. Because, again, he's very conflicted about doing something that seems deceptive. So there's a part of him that wants to be caught. And he's still nonetheless expressing that he's afraid that he'll be seen as somebody who's so deceptive here. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin compares this language to a similar word in Yermio, talking about Avodazara, and says, whoever changes, whoever acts in a dishonest, deceiving way, is like an Ovid Avodazara. And it discusses that comparison. So there's a contemporary sefer called Chikri Aaron on uh, Sugyas and a lot of things about Sheker and Gnevis Das. And he discusses there the comparison. This is a part of what is our people who are 
practitioners, they know that it's false. So a part of it is about getting people to give them donations. So there's a comparison here to Avodah Zarah. You're dressing up as someone in the hopes that people will give you something. But in Yitzchak's and Yaakov's case, so here it's for a good cause. So it's not going to be subject to the same kind of condemnation, but he's worried that's what he's going to look like. Uh, the Tertimim understands differently that it's talking about the overall corrosive effect, that here it would be a, a lie in a smaller context, but then once you could lie about that, you could lie about anything, and you could lie about God's essence also. You could deal in actual Avodah Zarah. The uh, Pasuk here also talks about Big Day Esau, let's get to Tezvav for a second, that here Vatikach Rivka is Big Day Esau, but notice that she gives him the clothes of Esau, Dasikanim explains that he had special hunting clothes with pictures of animals that looked real, and that she wanted Yaakov to wear this so he would look like Esau. So in the Sefer Abir Yaakov, so he notes that it's hard to understand why he has to worry about looking like Esau so much if Yitzchak couldn't see anyway. So why was it so important that he had the appearance of Esau? And he suggests that it's a part of his effort to try to be convincing. He has to also occupy the role more fully. It's what you call method acting. And sometimes the actors with a dress like the part they're playing, even in ways that the audience doesn't perceive, would have an impact on them. I don't want to say anything good about the BBC right now, but just to quickly note that Rav Schechter often remarks that the BBC when the radio days, not, I don't know that they were any more honest then, but they would uh, make sure to wear a tie even when on the radio because the hashba that the begotten would have on their demeanor, even when it's not visible, so so too here. So maybe that's also a part of it, that there is an effect that it's going to have, and that's what she was aiming at. So to maybe towards, skip towards the end here, but uh, just to make some general points, and we will uh, close off on about this whole interaction here about some of the major themes. So first of all, in terms of Hakol Kol Yaakov, Hayidayim De'esov, so the idea that there is this distinction between the hands of Yaakov and the hands of Esau and the voice of Yaakov and the voice of Esau. So specifically regarding that point about the difference between the voice of Yaakov and the voice of Esau, so the Ramban comments a little bit earlier in the Aliyah that actually it doesn't seem like that was something that Yaakov was worried about. So how come Yaakov, the whole interaction with Rivka, why didn't he say that Yitzchak's going to catch on because my voice is different? So he'll be voice ID and he'll recognize that I'm not Esau just by talking to me. So the Ramban has two interpretations. One interpretation is that maybe the Taka actually had the same voice, that they were twins and they did have the same voice, and that when the Torah distinguishes between Hakol Kol Yaakov, it doesn't mean what their voice sounds like. It means that Yaakov used different words. He had different vocabulary. He spoke in a more refined manner, and Esau was very crude. And therefore that he could choose to talk like Esau, so he didn't have to worry that he'd be caught, because we're not referencing a difference in their actual voice tone, we're referencing a difference in their vocabulary and in their choice of words. The other interpretation the Ramban has is that maybe they did have different voices, but maybe maybe Yaakov was a skilled mimic. Maybe he did a great Esau on Purim, and he had him really down pat, and therefore he was able to pull that off, so he wasn't worried that he'd be caught on that front, but it was the other issues that he thought would give him away. So there's a lot to say about that, but that's itself interesting. But just to note in really a cholistic aspect of this whole idea here, 
And we'll just uh, close in a few minutes, but just to uh, note about all of this. So when he says, Anochi Esav Bechorecha, so that certainly seems like the most explicitly untrue aspect of this whole thing, which is all certainly surprising to us in terms of its honesty and integrity aspect. But when he says, Anochi Esav Bechorecha, so that certainly seems to be an overt falsehood. However, so Rashi tells us, that it could be read, according to Tanakhuma. Right? So I'm the one bringing you this food, and Esav is your Bechor. So as a matter of halacha, we'll tell you that if that's the way you communicate with people, so that is not going to be considered honest, and do not try to deal in business like that, or with your spouse like that, or with your friends like that, that if you are saying something misleading, and you are in your mind thinking it has different meanings, so that is no less misleading than any other type of falsehood. So what's going on here? So what is the point of saying that this statement, which certainly seems completely false, to tell us, no, it's not really false, because he's thinking, So there's a major point here that was developed by many, such as, again, the Rashiva of Golvicht, and also Yaakov Kamenetsky and others, that there is a crucial point here that, of course, the sentence was deceptive. And, of course, what was being heard by the other person, by Yitzchak in this case, was going to mislead him. But that was necessary for whatever reason. That's what had to happen. But Yaakov still appreciated that as a man of MS, that if he's going to have to compromise for a good cause, but he's still going to have to do whatever he can in order to hold on to his Midas MS. So this was about maintaining his own internal integrity. And that, yes, of course, this does not meet the standard of complete honesty and communication at all. But what it was for the purpose of was in order to do what he can so that his own internal midas ha'emes was not affected as much as it could be. And that is a crucial Musa skill in of itself, that to whatever extent it's necessary to compromise on something to accomplish a crucial goal. So that may indeed be the case. But there still needs to be a awareness of what kind of corrosive effect that can have on one's midos and measures taken to counteract that. And that's a tremendous Moser Haskell that we see Yaakov doing here, that he's working on protecting himself internally even as he's doing what has to be done in order to advance the future of Klai Yisrael. And that's why I find it to be very difficult. There's a whole discussion, we'll talk about some more Pesach time, but there's a whole discussion surrounding the practice of stealing the Afikomen, which was very controversial, and there's a lot to talk about about that. And there are those who object to the practice, and Shlomo Zalman objected to at least calling it stealing the Afikomen. Uh, there are those who felt that this may be uh, even an Isidaraisa, because stealing something even temporarily, the Gemara says, is prohibited, and the Rambam understands that's because you train yourself to be sneaky and to steal things. So it's a big question how this became, if it's the case that it's an appropriate hanhaga in households during the Seder. It's a big question. There's a lot to say about that. Maybe we'll talk about that come Pesach time. But just to note here is a very <coughs> strange interpretation that there are some who say that it's because of this episode, this was Pesach night and the Afikomen was being eaten. And so therefore, to commemorate the fact that Yaakov had to act with trickery, so we use trickery, or we teach our children trickery 
Pesach night to commemorate the trickery of Yaakov in that same time of the Afikoman. And I think it's a very difficult interpretation because here we find that Yaakov was working hard to try to make sure that that did not get passed down to his descendants, to make sure that it did not have an impact on his neshama, and that that would not be something that was passed on. In fact, the Chazal tell us that this is associated with the Pasuk in Tehillim, Hitzila Nafshi Sheker, that he says appropriately has a comment about this, that Yaakov Davin, that this episode should not have an impact on his personality, should not be something that has an enduring effect on his soul and should be passed on to his descendants. So to specifically commemorate that and to teach our children Pesach night to, oh, remember the trickery and to honor that part of it, that would seem to go completely against what Yaakov was going for. It's kind of like saying if somebody has to do an act of pikuach nefesh on Shabbos, so we're very grateful that he saved somebody's life on Shabbos, and that's the right thing to do. So, but in order to honor that, so uh, the anniversary every year will be Mechal Shabbos. That's not going to help anybody, so he didn't want to honor the Mechal Shabbos part. It was necessary to do that in order to save someone's life, but we're not going to honor the Chil Shabbos component and to isolate that. So to say that we should just isolate the trickery, it seems a little strange, especially because that was his whole tefillah, that that shouldn't be the case, that that shouldn't have an enduring impact. It was necessary for the moment, but he specifically wanted to compartmentalize that and contain that and not let that be passed on and that he should maintain his midas ha'emes. And even if it's not recognized, so I think this is also a crucial message because a big part of the heroism of Yaakov at this time is that as the Isha ha'emes and as somebody who that was a crucial midah for, he certainly has to take a reputational hit in this story, both in terms of how Esau reacts and also in terms of how the whole rest of history sees him and tries to figure out this episode. And that was basically taking one for the team, essentially. He had to take, for Claudius Israel, he had to take this reputational hit and to allow himself to be perceived as having less integrity than he otherwise was so committed to, and to do this for the sake of the future of Klal Yisrael, and all at the same time, still working internally to make sure that he really was that Isha Emes, despite not being appreciated for it. And I think this is something that his descendants, who bear his name, the Bnei Yisrael, can very much appreciate in the contemporary climate as well, that here his nation is uh, Rachmanim, Bnei Rachmanim, and the people who invented the respect for life and the care for humanity. And we have to see that they are repeatedly not given credit for how careful they are with human life and for the sake of Shalom and for everything that they do, despite the barbarity of the enemy that they're dealing with and in the Olam Hafach that we're living in. The enemy gets a pass and they get blamed for whatever cost to human life takes place despite the fact that the Bnei Israel and the Israeli army does everything it can to try to minimize that and to devote themselves to Kedusha Sachayim and to Kavit Habrios. So whether or not the rest of the world will appreciate it, they continue to do everything they can for their own sake, for their own neshamos, in order to protect that nida and to preserve that aspect of what it means to be a human, what it means to be a descendant of the original Ishamas, the original Yaakov. And it should be a continuing schus that through that concern and that sensitivity, whether or not the rest of the world recognizes it and appreciates it, that nonetheless we know that it's there and may that be a source of ongoing merit for all of Bnei Israel and all of the army of the people of Israel, that they should have all the Hatzlacha that they need and that they should be able to bring a true and 
genuine balance of Emes and Shalom to the world. All right. So, uh,